I was thinking about this last night. After months of following the latest news on the pandemic, I think we're all starting to feel a little bit like infectious disease experts ourselves. Terms that would have been totally unfamiliar to us a year ago are now part of our daily conversation. PPE, r not, herd immunity, spike protein. But as vaccines once again move front and center in the news, I thought we could return to a process that does remain a bit of a mystery. How does a vaccine get made from start to finish? What are the challenges that researchers must overcome to get to clinical trials? When does the FDA get involved? And maybe most importantly, where do the current coronavirus vaccine candidates stand in this whole process? So today, I decided to sit down and talk to someone who's been through every step of the vaccine process himself, Dr. Paul Offit. He's one of the creators of a vaccine that protects millions of children around the world from rotavirus. In addition to seeing his own vaccine through the approval process, he's also been on another side of vaccine creation. He's a former member of one of the key vaccine advisory committees in the country, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's a scientist, he has a voice, he knows how these things actually get done. I spoke with him last week, shortly after Pfizer released promising early data about its vaccine candidate. Dr. Offit gives us an insider's view of what it takes to get an idea for a vaccine from the lab into the bodies of people all over the world. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Maurice Hillman, who I think is the father of modern vaccines, said it best, quote, I never be the sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. And that's always true. That's Dr. Paul Offit. Back in 2006, after decades of work on the rotavirus vaccine, he learned that it had been officially approved for all infants in the United States. Now, I was thinking if it were me, I would have probably popped a bottle of champagne to celebrate. But that wasn't how Dr. Offit was thinking about it. I remember me and, and my uh, coworker, Fred Clark, at the time, looked through all these gene databases. Is there anything we haven't thought about? Is it possible that the proteins in rotavirus mimic, you know, say, proteins in islet cells so that we could then be making an anti-insulin response and cause people to have diabetes or, you know, or mimic proteins that are on the cells that line uh, the joints so that we could be causing arthritis? You know, you're always sort of nervous <laughs> and anxious about this. And then when it's out and when it's out for years and now rotavirus has been virtually eliminated from the United States, then you relax. It's so interesting, uh, Dr. Offit. I, I, I didn't realize that for so long, even after approval, you're, you're, you're nervous. That's fascinating to me. When you're first starting a process, let's say, okay, we have a disease. We would like to make a vaccine for this disease. Where do you begin? Preclinical trials. So initially, um, you can go a long way if you can identify an experimental animal that mimics human infection. So for example, for SARS-CoV-2, people have looked at mice and monkeys and ferrets and rats and Syrian hamsters, which apparently are an excellent model. So you inoculate the animal with that virus, and then the virus, the animal develops pneumonia. Great. Now you have a model to study this. Then you have your strategy for how you want to make a vaccine, and you, you inoculate the animals with the vaccine. You see whether or not when you challenge 
encounter with the virus that they're protected. And then, frankly, most importantly, literally, you can dissect out that part of the immune response that's associated with protection. That gives you a lot of information. And then you move forward, hoping that that those animal model studies were predictive of man. But as they say in the vaccine world, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. You never know till you're really in people. Right. I, I've heard that phrase, and I think it, it really makes the point that you need to get to human human trials you work uh, within a big, uh, you know, university institution. You have a lot of support, but I imagine you do. You have to get pharmaceutical companies interested in your in your work early on. I mean, it, it, there, there's there's probably a lot of costs, right? So now you have a vaccine that can protect mice. The question is, you know, does it protect people? And and then that's when you go to the pharmaceutical companies because they're the only ones that have the resources and the expertise to manufacture under good manufacturing uh, practices to scale up for a, a process that costs more than a billion dollars. Phase one, um, that's that's the safety phase, right? The, 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 that's is that the biggest question you're trying to answer coming out of phase one? Right. So there's, once you finish the preclinical trials, now you think you've got it. You think you, you have a strategy to make the vaccine, but you need to figure out the dose. So phase one is usually 20 to 100 people, the so-called dose ranging trials. So you figure out, okay, this is the dose that seems to induce the immune response that I think is associated with protection against disease, but I don't really know that yet. Then you go to phase two, which is hundreds of people where now you have the dose and you have the strategy and, and you just want to make sure it's say, at least it doesn't have an uncommon serious side effect problem and that it's it's consistently inducing that immune response that you think works. Then you go to phase three, which is tens of thousands of people in a prospective placebo control trial. And that's the proof. That proves whether or not the vaccine works or not. And then you can say, at least with comfort, that you've ruled out a, a relatively uncommon serious side effect problem and that it works for a certain length of time in a certain group of people. With regard to phase three, the, the role of the placebo group, isn't everyone who hasn't received the vaccine the placebo group in a way? I mean, isn't that just the natural sort of history of what's happening? And now you're seeing if your vaccine makes a difference? Yes. So, so you could argue, why do prospective placebo control trials? Why not just put the vaccine out there, knowing that not everybody's going to get it, and then look at the people who got it and see whether they're protected compared to people who didn't get it, which is essentially, those are called wedge trials. And that's what was done with the Ebola vaccine when it was brought into West Africa. The reason that's important, by the way, is, is the thing that has always stuck with me, if you'll allow me one rant, was the polio vaccine trials. When Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine, he gave it to about 700 people in the Pittsburgh area. It was safe and it, it induced an immune response that he was certain was going to be protective. But Thomas Francis and others wanted to prove it. So what they did was they gave the vaccine to 420,000 people and then gave placebo to 200,000 people. That broke Jonas Salk's heart. The notion that we were giving essentially a placebo, you know, salt water, to 200,000 children broke his heart. And so when then Thomas Francis stood on the podium of Rackham Hall at the University of Michigan and said the famous three words, safe, potent and effective. And that was that's what on the headline of every U.S. newspaper. Jonas Salk's vaccine is safe, potent and effective. Well, how did he know it was effective? He knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. These were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. I mean, these people could have easily grown up to be healthy adults, but for the flip of a coin. And I think that's what people never really think about is the price paid for knowledge. And there is a price to be paid for that knowledge on both sides, safety and efficacy. Wow, that's really interesting. When you think about that now, 
Is it ethical for these trials to continue uh, with placebo control, either for Pfizer or, frankly, you know, even for these other companies? I realize that they're going to continue, uh, you know, trialing their vaccines, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca. As a observer, you say, OK, so you've just told me something is 90 percent effective. Why would you continue placebo control trial there with that vaccine? And why would you continue placebo controls with other vaccines? 90% is a really good number. Right. I think that's that's the question of the day. I'm on the NIH active group, and that was what we spent all day yesterday talking about. Um, part of the problem is that is that historically, the first vaccine is is often not the last best vaccine. And so are you going to be able to know if there's a better vaccine in terms of efficacy or safer vaccine, it makes it harder when you can't do the placebo trials. But I can't see how you can ethically do a placebo-controlled trial in this country knowing that you have a vaccine that works and appears to be safe. It's, it's really, it's, I think this is important. I just want to spend a couple minutes drilling down on this. All we've heard is, is sort of what Pfizer has told us, that there were some 43,000, 44,000 people in this trial. Half got placebo, half received the vaccine. 94 people over this time period apparently had symptoms. They came forward, and when they looked at these people, they said, well, 90% of them are in the placebo group. 10% are in the vaccinated group. What we don't know is there could be a lot more infected people in that in that vaccinated group. They may not have had symptoms, but there could be a, a lot more infected people. We don't know that this actually reduces infection. We don't know that it reduces transmission. That would be crucially important, right, Dr. Offit, for, in terms of the trajectory of this pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the heinous nature of this virus is, you know, is that most of the the, the people who you come in contact with who are infected um, are asymptomatically infected. Therefore, everyone is a potential uh, risk to you. And um, I think even what worries me in this is that people will be vaccinated and they'll think, great, I'm good. I can throw away the mask. I don't have to work worry about social distancing. I can engage in high risk activity and we could take a step back. And, and I think it's crucial to know whether or not we're preventing asymptomatic shedding and, and not just shedding, but sort of the shedding that, that at a level that would cause you to be contagious, because it may be that, that we do still have asymptomatic shedding, but we've critically reduced that amount of shedding. That's all knowable, but we need to do the studies to figure it out. Overall, you're optimistic about this vaccine? Very optimistic. I, I think this was a proof of concept for this kind of strategy, an mRNA strategy with which we have no commercial experience. I think it's it's very hopeful. So I'm optimistic. You think people will take it? Yes. I think what will happen is it'll roll out for, you know, for the essential workers, including healthcare workers, and then hundreds of thousands of people vaccinated, then millions of people vaccinated, then people feel much better about the safety, which is what they really worry about. I mean, most of the people you're asking to get this vaccine are healthy young people who are unlikely to die from this. They're worried about safety. And as, as we vaccinate more and more people, I think they'll be less worried. As Dr. Offit said, there's a lot of hope around this coronavirus vaccine from Pfizer, as well as the other vaccine candidates currently in phase three trials in this country and around the world. Just Monday, we got some big news from the company Moderna. Their early data suggests their vaccine is almost 95% effective at preventing COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Fauci called that striking and even raised a question that Dr. Offit and I discussed. Given how effective the vaccine appears to be, how can we do something with the placebo group that's fair? What's clear now is that there are still quite a few steps to go before any vaccine gets administered to people around the country. It is a long and painstaking journey to approval. And then there's the work of actually distributing the vaccine to doctor's offices and hospitals around the country. It took Dr. Offit 
26 years to see his rotavirus vaccine to fruition. So it's all the more exciting to see the development of several coronavirus vaccines move so quickly. There is hope on the horizon, but we do need to do our part, at least for the next several months. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.